Ecclesiastes 3.7 declares, There's a time to be silent and a time to speak. Generally speaking, if ever there was a time not to be silent, it's now. Truth is taking a major bashing. Yet the Word of God also says in Amos 5.13, When the days are evil, the prudent keep silent. How can we know when to be silent and when to speak? Is there a balance we need to discern? Shalom, I'm Christine Dark. The world was largely silent when the Nazis murdered six million Jews in the most barbaric chapter in human history. But that was 80 years ago, a generation that has since passed. A few righteous Gentiles stood with the Jews, but they were by far the exception, and certainly outspoken righteous Gentiles were not the rule. Unspeakable atrocities happened again on October 7, followed by hundreds of thousands of pro-Hamas marchers taking to the streets in Gaza and worldwide to chant slogans and to cheer the horrific actions of Hamas. Many liberal left-wing Jews who had been critical of Israel finally woke up as their former allies screamed for Jewish blood. My friend Eliyahu Berkowitz, the principal writer for Israel 365 News, wrote that every Israeli is on the verge of tears and is in need of a hug. He said for the first time he knew what it felt like to be a Jew, like a tiny flame sputtering in a storm of hatred. Identifying with persecuted Jews throughout the centuries, Eliyahu wrote, I'm a Jew hiding in the basement as the drunk Cossacks rage through the shekel. I'm a Jew waiting for the Inquisitor. I'm a Jew walking a dark street and hearing the word kike, Jew, yelled out from an alleyway. And now, tragically, bringing his identification up to date, Eliyahu wrote, I'm a student at an Ivy League university. Afraid to leave my room as kafia-wearing mobs scream for intifada. And it's not just due hatred that's menacing the world. A new report is documenting a drastic rise in anti-Christian hate crimes across Europe. The Observatory on Intolerance and Discrimination Against Christians in Europe published its annual report last week detailing a 44% increase in social hostility and violent attacks against Christians, as well as acts of vandalism and desecration of churches. According to the report, 748 anti-Christian hate crimes were committed in Europe last year, including 38 violent physical attacks and three murders. Arson attacks are also more common than in years past. Churches were targeted for firebombings and vandalism, especially in France and Germany. In fact, arson attacks nearly doubled in the past year. The report noted that there had been a surge of clear extremism-motivated attacks committed by groups with far-left or satanic, Islamic, feminist, or pansexual affiliations. The increase in the number of anti 
Christian hate crimes is truly shocking in a supposedly Christian continent. But the presence of many millions who advocate jihad is contributing to the rise of anti-Christian violence. The European report also noted a growing movement to suppress religious liberty and to criminalize Christian practices. For example, in Ireland, the government has been promoting what the Observatory on Intolerance called Europe's most extreme hate speech bill, which would shift the burden of proof to the accused. The accused would have to demonstrate that they did not intend to spread hate. The bill criminalizes private materials such as memes on a phone or books on a shelf and could potentially outlaw Christian teachings on subjects such as biblical sexuality. Churches must acknowledge that both Jews and Christians are clearly in the crosshairs of radical Islamists, not only in the Middle East, but across the world. For sure, if we remain silent about what's happening to Jewish people the world over, Christians will soon face the same abuses. In fact, the terrorists always say, first the Saturday people, the Sunday people are next. They use those days to identify Jews and Christians, and they don't try to hide their intentions. As my friend Leila Gilbert has written in her book, Saturday People, Sunday People, the threat of first attacking Jews and then Christians appears in graffiti across the world. And in Arabic, it's a much more definitive statement. On Saturday, we kill the Jews. On Sunday, we kill the Christians. In fact, in several Middle East countries, Jewish populations no longer exist. Their Jews were either driven out or killed. And today, Christian populations are also fleeing for their lives in those same nations. For example, in 1947, the Syrian Jewish population numbered around 15,000. But as of last year, only four Jews remained in Syria. As the Syrian Jews vanished, the number of Christians in Syria has fallen in a decade from one and a half million, 10% of the population, to about 300,000 today. That's according to the Syrian observer. And that's less than 2% of the population being Christian. In Iraq, according to a report by France 24, the Iraqi Jewish community has been reduced to fewer than five individuals. While Iraqi Jews have all but disappeared, Iraq's Christian community is also dwindling. Iraqi Christians date back to the church's first centuries, and some of the great eastern churches are associated with Assyrian territory. Until recent years, the Associated Press reported that Iraq was estimated to have nearly one and a half million Christians. That was before the U.S.-led invasion that toppled Saddam Hussein. Today, church officials estimate that only a few hundred thousand, or even less, remain within Iraq's borders. More recently, violent assaults on clergy and other Christians have become an everyday occurrence, including bombings and church massacres. Israel's Haaretz newspaper reported in 2021 that Yemen's Jewish population, once over 50,000, dropped to below 10 individuals. Layla Gilbert also wrote about the country of Yemen, 
that Yemen's Saturday people are gone. According to Gilbert, Yemen's Christians have experienced some toleration of their traditional churches. The Ethiopian Orthodox Church and the Russian Orthodox Church continue to exist there despite shrinking memberships. Traditional Christians are far less vulnerable to abuse than Christian converts from Islam. Of course, in Yemen, it's illegal to leave Islam and embrace Christianity, which means that accurate numbers of Yemeni Christians are difficult, if not impossible, to find. The truth is, Yemeni believers live in fear of persecution or charges of apostasy, and so they rarely declare their religious identities publicly. Meanwhile, the Jewish Virtual Library reports that there are no remaining Jews in Libya. I'll never forget sitting next to a Libyan Jew on an airplane and asking him why his family had immigrated to Israel. He said they got out of Libya when one day they discovered, and I warn you, this is gruesome, they discovered to their shock and horror that his grandmother's head was found spiked on top of a house of worship. Yet Libya had been home to a Jewish community for thousands of years. And although the Jews had lived under Greek, Roman, Ottoman, Italian, British, and Arab rule, this once thriving community no longer exists today. As for the safety and security of today's Libyan Christians, the organization Open Doors reports that if Muslim background Libyans become Christians, they're likely to face intense pressure to renounce their faith or even be killed. Libyan Christians who publicly express their faith and try to share the gospel with others are likely to face arrest or retribution from extremist groups. In May of this year, six Libyans were sentenced to death for converting to Christianity. According to the Guardian newspaper, the six Libyans have been charged for circulating views that aim to alter fundamental structures of the social order, or to overthrow the state. And what about Israel's neighbor to the north? In Lebanon in 1948, there were 20,000 Jews. But as of three years ago, only 29 Jews remained in Lebanon. In the mid-20th century, Lebanon was one of the wealthiest and most prosperous countries in the Middle East. Lebanon's capital, Beirut, was once known as the Paris of the Middle East. It was the only state in the Middle East where Christianity was dominant, at one point making up over 60% of the population. But today, Lebanon's Christians are persecuted. According to an article in the Washington Examiner, Lebanon is in freefall. Iran has its proxy in Lebanon called Hezbollah, and the more powerful and influential the Iranian-backed terrorist group becomes, the less safe are Lebanese Christians. Beyond the Middle East, Jews and Christians live dangerously in most Muslim-majority countries, such as Somalia, Nigeria, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Sudan. Concern is growing as well over events that have been unfolding in the United States. Raging campus protests against Jews and shocking violent opposition to Christian holiday celebrations in New York are very concerning. Israeli prophetic media commentator Amir Safadi warns, right now America must wake up. 
Amir said, Your southern border is so open, and I can't even imagine how many terrorist cells are already in your country right now, waiting to strike. In the coming decade, should our Lord tarry, English theologian Carl Truman wrote recently, every single church still calling itself Christian will face a choice. Do we follow scriptural revelation or the sexual revolution? Catechism or culture? The cross or the rainbow flag? The atmosphere is also changing in a sinister way towards Christians in America, a nation that has been known to be Christian. But recently, longtime Democratic political consultant James Carville made headlines. It's a new line of attack. He accused Speaker of the House Mike Johnson of being a Christian nationalist, posing a bigger threat than al-Qaeda. Such over-the-top statements are attempts to dehumanize faithful Christians who advocate a biblical worldview. Nevertheless, and this is good news, and it's really just sensible, a new study reveals that teens who are blessed with conservative parents are more likely to be mentally healthy. According to the Institute for Family Studies and Gallup, thousands of parents and adolescents were surveyed. They were asked about all sorts of topics, mental health, visits to doctors, practices of parenting, family relationships, personality traits, attitudes toward marriage and other topics, including the excessive use of social media. The findings are clear. The most important factor in the mental health of adolescent children is the quality of the relationship with their caregivers. Of course, this should be a given, but it seems people are so deluded these days that such a survey is necessary. So, good mental health is strongly related to parenting practices, with the best results coming from warm, responsive, and rule-bound parents who discipline lovingly. The report specified that conservative and very conservative parents are the most likely to adopt parenting practices associated with adolescent mental health. Also, parents who think highly of marriage exhibit better parenting practices and have a higher quality relationship with their teenagers. The results may be shocking to many highly educated Americans who have been taught to believe that socioeconomic status dictates everything positive in life. But income doesn't buy better parenting. And more highly educated parents don't score better either. The survey noted pointedly that there are some parental characteristics that do have an impact, and political ideology is one of the strongest predictors. Conservative parents are the most likely to adopt parenting practices that are associated with adolescent mental health. Conservatives are the most likely to discipline their children effectively, while also displaying affection and responding to their needs. Interestingly, liberal parents scored the lowest, largely because they're the least likely to discipline their children successfully. By contrast, according to the survey, conservative parents enjoy higher quality relationships with their children, characterized by fewer arguments, more warmth, and stronger bonds. And that comes from not just the parents' perspective, according to the report, 
but also from the children who were surveyed. Aside from political ideology, parents who disagree that marriage is an outdated institution exhibit better parenting practices and have a higher quality relationship with their teens, the survey said. Parents who hope for their own children to get married someday also tend to be more effective parents. The report found that those who embrace a pro-marriage view have the best outcomes. Again, this should go without saying, but due to the deterioration in society, these groups have to be reinstated. And there's a difference between authoritative homes and authoritarian households. The report noted that children raised in authoritative homes are more likely to exhibit self-control, social competence, success in school, compliance with rules, and reasonable social norms. They even exhibit more confidence in creativity. So now I want to come back to my text for today, Amos 5.13. Therefore the prudent keep silent in such times, for the days are evil. The verse seems to be saying that at such a time as this, the person who acts wisely may opt to hold his peace because it's a time of moral corruption and personal danger. But on the other hand, prophetic persons cannot restrain and must not hide their convictions. For example, there's an important principle in Ezekiel 33, verse 3, a verse which says, when the watchman sees the enemy coming, he sounds the alarm to warn the people. The love of one's country and the love of souls, as well as our zeal for people's deliverance, impel both prophets and intercessors to share the truths of the gospel. I looked up the Bible commentaries on Amos 5.13, and they say that the prudent are spiritually wise, often avoiding taking part in public or private affairs in an evil time when lawlessness abounds. Yet, Ephesians 5.16 also exhorts us to redeem the time because the days are evil. Instead of agitating against hopeless evils, the godly wise will be careful not to cast their pearls, so to speak, before swine who will only trample them down. That's according to Jesus' own wisdom in Matthew 7.6. This chosen silence should be toward reprobates, and not toward people who are open-minded candidates for salvation. Discernment is indeed necessary. Discernment is everything. Gill's exposition of the Bible says it's the business of the prophets of the Lord to reprove evil and not to hold their peace. Although, according to a Jewish targum on the verse, reproof will not change wicked men. Therefore, we must know how to discern when someone is capable of hearing and responding positively, and when someone is a hardened reprobate. Remember that Jesus himself was silent before the Tetrarch Herod Antipas, who was the son of the infamous Herod I, Herod the Great. According to Luke 23, when Jesus was arrested in Jerusalem, Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, first sent Jesus to Antipas, who was spending Passover in the capital, because Jesus came from Galilee, which was the realm of Herod Antipas. But Jesus didn't waste a single word on Herod because he knew it would be fruitless. 
You see, at times silence is perceived as weakness, but in Jesus' case, silence was power. Jesus also said very few words when he stood before the Jewish Sanhedrin and before the Roman governor. Under oath, when the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Because he was adjured in the name of his father, Jesus affirmed that he is the Messiah. In Mark 14, 62, he said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Hallelujah. But the vast majority of the lies of his persecutors and the questions were met by Jesus' dignified silence. And as I said, he was altogether silent before the reprobate Herod, who had executed Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. So what does his silence teach us? Well, the Gospels record that when Jesus was sent by Pilate to Herod Antipas, Herod was very glad because he was hoping to be entertained by some sign performed by Jesus. He questioned Jesus at some length, but Jesus made no answer. He remained utterly silent. Miracles are not performed for unbelievers. And from this, we learn that sometimes staying silent, like Jesus demonstrates, God's authority more than speaking. Jesus refused to obey and to accommodate Herod. Think about it. If a bully can provoke us to action, the bully feels powerful and triumphant. So when we're tempted to yell or to shout words of anger or to gossip, sometimes the best way to show that God is the authority in our life is to keep silent. But having said all of that, of course, there are other times when we must stand up for truth. German theologian and anti-Nazi dissident Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. So we need discernment on a moment-by-moment -moment basis to know when to speak, when to keep silent, when a battle is ours, and when a fight is not ours. Right now, Israel is embroiled in yet another fight for its very existence against radicalized terrorists. The war with Hamas has already proven to be the longest of all the wars Israel has experienced so far. But Scripture tells us that Israel will overcome all these challenges to its existence because God has promised their destiny and ultimate national redemption. This and other Israeli conflicts of the past 75 years prove, beyond a doubt, that God has his hand on Israel, that the Almighty is protecting the Jewish people from one attack after another, and he is enabling them to achieve miraculous victories, all in fulfillment of Bible prophecies concerning the restoration of Israel in the end times. With each passing day, it becomes clearer that the way is being paved for the war of Gog and Magog, described in Ezekiel 38 and 39, when Russia, accompanied by certain Muslim nations, will come against Israel but will suffer rebuke and supernatural intervention by the Lord himself. As intercessors and as watchmen on the walls, we must know that Israel has some very difficult days ahead. 
but God has made profound promises that can be relied upon. For example, in Psalm 121, he says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And in Isaiah 54, 17, God promises to Israel, No weapon formed against you shall prosper. In Amos 5.10, it's stated as fact, there are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. Yes, indeed, a characteristic of an evil society is its rejection of justice and truth, and this spirit is certainly widespread today. We need to assess our own personal situations in light of what's going on, in light of Bible prophecy, and the eternal truths of God's word. Because no one knows in advance the day of one's death or the day of the rapture, we would do well to repent of our sins every day and be prayed up, always ready to meet God. Who knows? Perhaps your name will be called today, ending your lease on life in this world. The question is, are we ready? Are we prepared to appear before God, our creator and redeemer, to give account for our lives. That's why the sages counsel us to live carefully each day as if it were our last day, making sure we're attending to the things that really matter. Jesus said in Mark 13, 33, but watch, for you know neither the day nor the hour. It takes awareness of the brevity of our days to realize that life is a great gift to be lived carefully each day. Sometimes we are awakened to the brevity of life when a loved one dies, or we may experience our own near-death experiences, causing us to cherish and value life in a new way. If we had thousands of years to live, it's likely we might postpone the most essential decision regarding life. Therefore, we must number our days to get a heart of wisdom, to concern ourselves with matters of eternal significance. For how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation that was purchased for us by Jesus at the cross? Every day I thank him for bearing all my sins and pains on the cross as a vicarious substitute. He has forgiven and healed me many times, and I'm eternally grateful for the free gift of salvation. Although the world is becoming darker and more dangerous, there is safety in Jesus. So today, my friend, if you have never made that decision to invite the risen Lord Jesus into your life, please do it right now while there's still time to receive him as your Lord and Savior, healer and deliverer. Amen. In the meantime, we also invite you to continue to explore our helpful website, exploits.tv, which reports on healing and end-time events relating to both the church and Israel. At our website and also at our Jerusalem Channel YouTube site, you'll find a library of videos 24-7. And we also invite you to sign up for our weekly email called Exploits. Daniel 11.32 declares the people who know their God will be strong and will accomplish exploits, the works of the Lord. Feel free to share your thoughts with me also on social media, or you can contact me on your phones or tablets through our free Jerusalem Channel mobile app. And don't forget to check out my latest articles and essays at my Substack pages. 
Until next time, always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Dark. Shalom and Maranatha.